Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Hello out there, my friends. This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of Banal of America Audio, Season 2. It is December 16th, 2006, and this week we have a bit of a patchwork episode for you. First, we're going to wrap up our conversation with Bill Ryan from last week. We're going to talk about the final months of the Servo story, why it seemed to kind of fizzle out, and we're going to have some big picture analysis on what it all might mean. Following that, it is the first ever Banal of America Audio double guest interview, as Kerry Cassidy joins Bill and I, and the three of us will discuss their new endeavor, Project Camelot, which features video interviews with esoteric whistleblowers. We're going to talk about how it came about, what the goals are for it, how do they find their interview subjects, and how do they guard against potential hoaxers, plus, of course, tons and tons more. For those of you unfamiliar with Bill Ryan, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Bill Ryan has a BSc in mathematics with physics and psychology from Bristol University in the UK, and followed this with a brief stint in teaching. For the last 27 years, he has been a management consultant specializing in personal and team development, leadership training, and executive coaching. Major long-term clients have included BAE Systems Limited, formerly British Aerospace, Hewlett-Packard, and PricewaterhouseCooper. In November of 2005, he inaugurated the Project Serpo website. The report of an alleged disclosure in stages of a U.S. alien exchange program claimed to have taken place over 40 years ago. While he had been interested in UFOs, free energy research, and alternative medicine, he has trained as a kinesiologist for over 30 years, his first contact with the UFO community at large occurred after establishing the Serpo website. You can find out more information on Bill Ryan at www.serpo.org or www.projectcamelot.org. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Kerry Cassidy, stick around. Following the Bill Ryan solo interview, I'll pop back in to give you the bio information as we roll on to the dual interview portion of the show. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll with Bill Ryan wrapping up the discussion on Project Serpo. This interview was recorded on October 26, 2006. Bill Ryan on Banal of America Audio, Season 2. Okay, and then uh, there's only two more postings here from from the anonymous. The, at that point, the uh, there's one more posting in April, April 3rd, which is uh, I believe that's the technical list of things they brought and that kind of stuff. Yep. Um, and, uh, and as you said, that was uh, that one went right to Victor Martinez again. So that he, went right to Victor. I um, I didn't know anything about it until he streamed it on his list, um, and we were right back to the way things were in early November. It's like, oh, look at this. This is interesting. It just appeared in my inbox. I had no idea it was coming. No idea whatsoever. Neither had Victor. He was as surprised as anybody. Now, I just this kind of question just popped in my head. I wanted to ask you. Um, when it was determined that you would become the new conduit for Anonymous, uh, you said that they were putting the, the information on the server. Were you ever in any contact with Anonymous uh, himself or the group or whatever? Were you ever in any contact aside from them putting this stuff up? Did they ever email you and be like, good job or anything like that? No, I never had any any to and fro with them the, the way Victor has. It seems that Victor has a continuing running email dialogue, um, and I never had that opportunity to have a running email dialogue. And so I wasn't able to push back with questions. I was never able to check facts. I was never able to say, you know, look, um, uh, would you like me to do it like this or like that? Yeah. I, I did it. I, I basically just did as I was told. 
And then afterwards, and one of the postings, as I mentioned a little while back, with the team commander's logs, after I'd posted it, um, unchanged. I mean, for goodness sake, there's one of these logs even ended in the middle of a sentence. Yeah. You know, uh, didn't even have a period at the end of it. And I just, you know, and I didn't even put that period there. And they, they said to me, whoever this was, they said, well done, this is exactly as we wanted it. And I never got a chance to get back to them saying, hey, why? You know, <laughs> well, what's going on here? I just never had a chance to enter into that dialogue. Um, I, I believe, and I need to be very careful in what I'm saying here, I believe that Victor may still be in continued contact with Anonymous. I don't know whether this is true or not. Uh, he's keeping his cards very close to his, to his chest. Um, I don't know if that necessarily means that there'll be any more or not. I really don't have any more inside information than that. I'm, I'm right back, you know, um, after my so-called 15 minutes of fame, I'm right back to where I was back <laughs> in, which is that I'm waiting for something to appear in my inbox, and if it does, I'll stick it on the website. Yeah. And that really is all I know. Um, all the rest of it has been the intrigue, which I've got wrapped up in, some of which I've described to you. Oh, definitely. In an interesting story, and I hope that your listeners have been able to follow it closely enough to find it as interesting as I have. I think so. I think so, and I hope so. I think we've uh, I think we've followed along pretty well. And 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 to wrap it up here on the postings, uh, the final posting that we know of from Anonymous came on August August twenty first, so about two two months ago now. So the last posting, uh, and that one contained uh, something about crystal rectangle, which was apparently the ET's form of uh, energy source, and also a list of scientists that were involved in this crystal rectangle deal, and uh, the scientist list was approximately 30 or so. Um, talk a little bit about the final uh, anonymous posting as we know it. Well, yeah. Um, it was different from the others. Yeah. Because the word SERPO was never mentioned. It was nothing to do with the exchange program. It was more to do with who had been, you know, um, involved in this behind the scenes. And it was most interesting because a lot of names were mentioned and it was very quickly established by a lot of people who jumped on this. These are real people. This isn't um, uh, um, just a bunch of names that have been invented by somebody. Yeah. These are real names, real situations. And um, I think it's a bit of a slow process, but the last I heard, um, some people were doing quite a lot of um, uh, research, trying to find out whether these people could have been involved, you know, in the way that was claimed in programs such as this. Yeah. Um, and as best I know, the tentative conclusion is yes, they could have been um, because of the positions that, that, uh, that they held. And then, of course, you've got this whole catch-22 in the entire thing that if somebody was involved in a black program, and he sent them a polite email as a stranger saying, oh, by the way, were you involved in this black, e uh, this black program? They're not necessarily going to say, well, yes, I was actually. <laughs> Thanks, Ra. <laughs> no. Um, they're unlikely to say that. They're likely either to deny it um, and hope that the whole thing will go away um, or not even to reply to the message. And I know that there are a small group of people who's working quite hard at this list of names, but nothing earth-shattering has come up. It, it certainly has been established that they're real people. Yeah. It is interesting that they would have been mentioned in quite a high profile like this, um, because as you uh, 
as you will know, of course, I'm a Brit, and one thing I know about the States is that lawsuits can start flying around very, very quickly. And you would have thought that someone would be very careful about mentioning someone's name in purported connection to a classified program that's going to be debated and pushed and pulled and slandered all over the Internet um, without this person's consent or knowledge yeah. or complicity in the program to start off with. So I'd have thought that whoever wrote that would have been careful. But I don't know. It's another thing which I don't know. It didn't really say a lot that was brand new. It said a lot about um, this supposed fifth isotope of, of hydrogen, which um, which was um, supposedly called um, Pentium. Some people jumped on that and said, actually, it wouldn't have been called Pentium. It would have been called Pentagen um, in terms of the naming protocol. Yeah. Um, that was one of the one of the minor criticisms that was made, but once again, nothing has come of that to either add more weight to the story or to show that it doesn't stand up. Um, even if the photographs appeared, people would say, "Oh, you know, look at what Photoshop can do." You see. Yeah. Um, what I've discussed with Victor um, for quite a while now and he completely agrees with me about, is that actually the photographs might be very dramatic for everyone to see, but they really wouldn't prove a thing. What would be dramatic would be to see some uh, some images of uh, what are supposedly Carl Sagan's astronomical mathematical calculations to do with how to reconcile the strange orbit of Serpo with the known Kepler's laws and how they apply to a binary system. Yeah. We heard early on in the releases that there were 60 pages of calculations which helped Carl Sagan come to terms with his weird information. If we had some images of that, then you can't fake good math. Um, Photoshop won't do that. It's yeah. going to be real if it's there. That's the kind of thing that if this is real information and if somebody there does want it to be taken seriously, and if they are going to try and turn this into a class act, which Rick Doty says it isn't, then that's the kind of thing that needs to be forthcoming in order to get people to sit up and, and take notice. My fear, as it were, is that, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's not really a fear. Uh, I say that with a bit of drama, but my, um, I, I'm afraid that, that there won't be any more, that this is all we have, and that as the years roll on, this will go down in history that's another one of those things that a whole lot of people are convinced is a hoax. No one can ever quite nail anybody for it, but there's not enough substantive evidence for um, uh, for us to stop and really take it seriously in detail until the next big story comes along. And one of the problems, just to kind of retreat back to a big picture overview of this, is, yeah. that the, is that the UFO community has had so many false dawns over the years, there have been so many promises. There have been so many, right, this is the story that's going to convince us all. Yeah. You know, um, all, you know, there's the MJ-12 documents, and there was the Holloman Landing film, and, 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 um, and there was all kinds of things that people have been promised and which never materialized, and people have been hoped that this is the evidence that we've got now. Look at the Phoenix Lights. This is going to convince the world. No, it didn't, you know. And a lot of people who've been in this, community, uh, the UFO community, for quite a long time, they're, they're still standing
something that they're tired and they're a little fed up and they're a little frustrated. Yeah. And they'll give the story a certain amount of time to make it, you know, to see if it will stand up. But if it doesn't survive quickly, then actually they're going to move on. They're not going to hang on to it for that long. Um, I think I think that the serious – well, okay, let me do a little bit of categorization here very briefly. Okay. I think that the story has caught the imagination of people who don't have an extremely sophisticated level of research knowledge. These are the people who they still write to me every day saying, this is absolutely wonderful. Thank you for releasing all this information. And I kind of feel a little bit embarrassed because I don't really want to get back to this, you know, to pop their balloon and say, well, yeah, you know, but it probably isn't all true. Yeah, you know? yeah. Because they actually think it is. Um, and I'm sure it's not because it can't, I mean, it can't be true, surely. You know, it can't all be true. There's, there are who I think are some very smart researchers who are taking the story seriously still because of the nuggets that it might contain. Mm-hmm. They've got the time and the attention and the interest to look into it in detail to, for instance, to try and square this off with the other stories about exchange programs that have been circulating for a couple of decades now. Exactly, yeah. And, and then there are other people who, for very, very understandable reasons, are just too busy with their own stuff and they haven't even commented on it. And I understand that fully. I have heard no comment on this from Stan Friedman. I have heard no comment on this from Ryan or Robert Wood, for example. There are a lot of other researchers who have not commented about the story because they've got their hands full already with, um, with, with other research that they're doing. There are many stories, not all as dramatic as this, but some of which have got more solid base for a serious researcher to really push and pull at. And and a lot of the serious researchers really are looking at other things now because this doesn't have anything which they can get at. Yeah. And once again, this is where we started right at the very beginning, that there's no proof. And, and if there were any real research details for someone to dig up, then I think the big guns would be onto it, but they're not. And that's one of the things that could have been different if it had been better managed, assuming that there was a real story behind there in the first place. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So here we are. We're a year removed from the birth of the Serpo story. Um, what's your overall perspective on the whole thing? You so- It sounds like you, you started out sort of hopeful like the rest of us, and it's, co- it's cooled down considerably since the story broke. And as you said, you don't think it's even going to go any further than this. Um, what's your overarching perspective on the Serpo story? I stated my conclusions in a, a written interview I did with Tim Van Tura from American Anti-Gravity. That's published on the Serpo site as well. Yeah. Um, and I stated that I thought there was disinformation in the story. I felt that that original anonymous message which I got myself from the Los Alamos source that said it was 80-20 truth fiction could well be true because you've only got to inject 20% of nonsense into a story like this for the whole thing to suddenly start to get very weird indeed. Yeah. Um, uh, the, um, I do believe that there have been natural errors that have been, that have crept in the story as well. It could be that even if there wasn't any um, mischievous mixing of information, there could be accidental mixing of information. It sounds, I mean, even to the extent of accounts of two 
different exchange program as being confused with one another. Yeah. You know, maybe it wasn't Zeta Reticuli, maybe it was Alpha Centauri, maybe the teller of the story thought it was Zeta Reticuli. Humans get things wrong. I do think that there is some truth behind it all, and that's why I want people to consider whether or not an exchange program could have taken place. You see, besides, you know, all this drama and the cloak and dagger stuff and the story behind the story and, you know, and, and who's saying what or who's trying to deceive who or whatever, there's this fundamental question, which is that, as I said earlier, if alien visitation is reality and if contact has been established, then the next thing that follows is the least surprising of those of of the three, including yeah. the first two, which is that then they've invited us home mm -hmm. with them in their craft. It stands to reason that that would have happened. It's the next logical thing. It would have been extraordinary if it hadn't happened, yeah. and it would have been extraordinary if it had only happened once. Why would we think that this was only that even if it did happen? It happened between 1965 and 1978, and hasn't happened in the 30 years since. I mean, that's that's kind of hard to believe. Um, somebody who I was talking with just a few days ago made what I thought was a very sharp comment indeed, was that if they're releasing information, they're going to release obsolete information because that's old stuff. Yeah. Who knows what they're doing now, but this happened 40 years ago, and therefore, it's a wild story. It happened 40 years ago. We can kind of let this one go and just see what happens to it, you know. Yeah. And that something like that may may be what's happened here. So all of that is a rather lengthy reply to a simple question, which is what <laughs> position. Um, well, I wanted to follow up that sort of question with um, in that interview that you referenced with Tim Ventura, you hypothesize that uh, the original Serpo Anonymous um, was three would-be Serpo astronauts and a DIA official. Um, can you extrapolate on that hypothesis? Wow, yes. Um, the person who broke this story was Jerry Pippin on his website back in March, mm -hmm. who revealed the presence of three Serpo astronauts who had been in training with the team who were going to go to SOFA but didn't actually go. They were kind of like reserves sitting on the bench. Um, and they survived to this day, although the, uh, the, the eight who returned have died. And one of the reasons why they all died a little earlier than, than their usual um, lifespan was because they had heavy doses of radiation while they were there. Mm -hmm. During the 13-year period, period, it was a high-radiation environment. And so they succumbed to various things. And the three astronauts who didn't go have survived them, and that um, it is them who is behind the releases. Now, I know that these are real people. Well, no, let me think. Uh, so we're talking epistemology. How does one know anything? <laughs> um, I know the names of two of them. Um, I've corresponded with one of them. Um, I have not met them. I have not spoken with them. I believe that they are real people. I'm, I'm not, for obvious reasons, I'm not going to release their names. I'm not going to release their whereabouts. Um, somewhere in there, then, is the plausible idea that you've got, um, you know, I mean, this is the stuff of which good storytelling is made. You may even have the idea that these are elderly people who are going to tell the story themselves. And so until uh, before they got to tell it themselves, the DIA 
who apparently has been responsible for this entire program, then kind of trumped them by saying, right, okay, what we'll do is we'll release our version of the story, which is full of a little bit of nonsense and so on and so forth. Ah, uh, yeah, um, I see what you're saying, yeah. So that if these if these three astronauts really were going to spill the beans, you know, maybe because they didn't, they felt they were in the twilight years of their life and they didn't have an awful lot, you know, longer to go and they really want to tell the full truth, mm-hmm. a perfect ploy in the intelligence community would be to tell it first. Yeah, to poison the well. Well, yeah, exactly. But to tell it their way. Something like that could have happened. But as best I know and as best I believe, these three people are real elderly people. And you say you corresponded with them? I've corresponded with one of them. And have they given any indication that they're ready to uh, come forward and share the story, uh, share their name, you know, and really bust this thing open? No, absolutely not, which is a shame. Um, have you tried to twist their arm a little bit? I have no... I have- <laughs> Absolutely no leverage to do that with. It's it, this is you know I mean there are far greater forces acting on on the story and on these people than me. Yeah. You know? I mean I mean I can't do anything. Um, if anyone you know I mean <laughs> if anyone knows anything, and I say this in every interview, and every now and then somebody does know something, you know, um, if anyone listening to this knows anything. Get in touch. They can contact you know. Uh, they can contact you at the show. They can contact myself. You could arrange for you know for, for this to be as anonymous under any circumstances that anyone wishes. There are an awful lot of people out there who would who doesn't want to end you know this story just to end in a big mystery. It would yeah. be very nice to put it to bed once and for all um, with. With more clarity than we've managed to get so far in the best part of a year, and I would welcome hearing from anybody who's got any clarification to offer or any inside information. Let's hear it. If a program like this did exist, a lot of people must have been involved. A lot of people must have been involved. Yeah. Um, and what do you think about your role in this story? You became, you went from an, a passive participant to an active participant, and I'm sure that you have suffered the slings and arrows of becoming a part of the story. Uh, What's your perspective on, like you said, the 15 minutes of fame and invariably uh, the accusations that you are up to no good as a part of a a Serpo hoax, if you will? Yeah. um, I'm sure you've heard them, so. (laughs) Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, As I think I said quite a while back, um, I had no idea whatsoever. It, it, the thought didn't even occur to me. You know, I, I didn't even think I'd be participating in in forums. I would be talking to people. You know, that, that I'd be kind of dragged into the debate or being interviewed. I had no idea of any of this. The thought never even occurred to me. I just thought I was putting up a website, and it all seemed quite fun. It was quite exciting. It was quite interesting. Um, and we were all waiting for the photographs to appear the next day. You know. Um, I made the mistake of assuming that everyone is reasonable. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a kind of snide, carping way. No, I but, know what you mean. But I I spent hours and hours of every day and every night, I was responding to every critical message. I was arguing with people reasonably on forums who, as best I know now, were hell-bent on destroying the story and weren't being reasonable at all. They just had a different agenda. I would now not bother to, um, to, to, to even engage in debate with those people, because I know an awful lot more about how internet forums worked. Up until December, I'd never been on an internet forum in the whole of my life, you know. Um, 
<laughs> it was quite a baptism of fire. And so there were things like that which I kind of learned the hard way. Yeah. Um, I've got, um, I, I mean, I don't regret anything at all, but I do um, feel that I wasted a lot of time in conversation with people who basically didn't deserve all that time that I was willing to give them because they didn't even want to know the answers to the questions that they were asking me. They were just trying to prove points and their minds were already made up. Um, my life has completely changed since that time. I'm delighted about that. It was through Serpo that I met my partner, Kerry Cassidy, and we're now working together on Project Camelot, which is a totally different thing, but related in the sense that we're helping whistleblowers to tell their stories. And it's a lot of fun. It's more wide-ranging than Serpo. It's more. It's like a general version of presenting the truth that somebody has to tell. Yeah. We're doing everything we can do to persuade real people to come forward. Because if somebody remains too anonymous for too long, it just doesn't work, as I've discovered with the whole Serpo thing. You've got to have something substantive for people to grab hold of. I met Carrie because she interviewed me about Serpo at the Laughlin conference. Um, she did a video interview with me, and then we turned the camera off, and then we got talking for two and a half hours, and then we went out to dinner the next night, and now I'm living in Los Angeles. And I would never have believed like anything this would happen, and, and so my life has been full of wonderful things. That's great. I've met a whole lot of wonderful people, um, which greatly outweigh the skeptics and the cynics and the critics. Um, like... Like, I mean, I, 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 I hate to use the word celebrity because, I mean, there's really, you know, but, but I mean, I remember reading um, on the sports pages about how, how, how um, sportsmen and women um, in any sport, they don't read what the newspapers say about them, but they yeah. still put them off their game. Um, this is a clumsy reference to my saying that I don't read what people read about me either um, because it's not worth it. I mean, yeah. I'll, I'll just get upset about it. Yeah. What do you mean they don't believe me? You know. Yeah. Uh, and now I kind of know that there will always be people out there who will think whatever they want to think. Um, but my life has changed completely, and I'm delighted about that. It's changed in ways that are wonderful and in ways that I would never have dreamed were possible. I have no idea what the next 12 months will bring. I've, I know that it'll be full of surprises. Um, and I don't regret a thing. And the whole thing's been an, a completely astonishing journey. It sounds like it. It sounds like it. Um, what's next for Serpo? Uh, do we just wait for another posting to come along? You said you don't think it's going to go much further, if at all. Um, it's just pretty much a waiting game at this point, wouldn't you say? We wait for other things to come along. Uh, for more to come along. And in the meantime, I think we busy ourselves with other activities. Yeah. Um, I, I have got my hands full with Project Camelot. That's a full-time job. I mean, it really is a full-time job at the moment for us both. Mm -hmm. um, and things are very exciting. That's where 95% of my attention is on. Um, uh, looking at we can do to support the people who we are in communication with. We're planning interviews, we're planning um, our travel and logistics so that we can meet various people in various locations and looking, you know, kind of planning all that, how we can get that information out in just the way as you do when you plan a radio show. Yeah. Um, 
I had no idea that, that, that I would be having anything to do with that, but it's a wonderful way to spend every day. I absolutely love that. And so, to some degree, Serpo has been a kind of hangover from the precursor of all of this. This is That's where it started. Um, and I'm, you know, I don't wake up in the morning thinking about Serpo. I get up in the morning chatting with Project Camelot, or, yeah. or I get up in the morning reading messages from Camelot uh, on the Camelot uh, website contact form from people who have extraordinary stories to tell and are saying, do you think you could help me get my story out? Yeah. We've got a number, and that's very, very exciting. Um, and so, Sopo does feel like yesterday's news. Um, Kerry and I don't talk about it very much. We only talk about it if something happens. And I don't know if anything's going to happen um, from here on out. But then, you see, there have been several pauses yeah. or or. or breaks in the release of information where everyone concerned thought the whole thing had stopped. And so uh, one or two people are waiting to the first anniversary of the SOPA releases saying, oh, you know, um, Victor Martinez is very cunning. He's just waiting up. You know, he's got something up his sleeve and he's going to hit us all with it on the 2nd of November 2006. Yeah. If that's the case, he hasn't told me. Um, if that's the case, I'm going to have to bring you back on here before we hear the interview, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but that's right, and then we'll take it from there. And that's that's really all I can say. Um, yeah. That's really all I can say. But as far as I'm concerned, personally, um, where my focus is on is on Project Camelot. And if more comes um, comes up about Serpo, then I'll deal with it as best I can. But I'm not going looking for anything, and we'll just we'll just see what happens. Awesome. Um, all right, you want to talk about uh, Project Camelot now? There you go. That was Bill Ryan wrapping up the Serpo discussion, and now it's time to talk about Project Camelot. Joining us in this conversation will be Carrie Cassidy, Bill Ryan's partner in Project Camelot. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Carrie Cassidy, let me give you a little bit of background on her. Carrie Lynn Cassidy has a BA in English with graduate work in sociology, an MBA certificate from the UCLA Anderson Graduate School of Management, and was competitively selected to attend a year of film school at the UCLA Extension Short Fiction Film Program as one of their first hyphenates, a writer, director, producer. After 19 years in Hollywood, working for major studios and independent production companies in production, development, and new media, she has written a number of screenplays, acquired the movie rights to The Wingmaker's Story in 2003, and started work on her own UFO documentary in 2005. At the time of this writing, July 2006, she has completed three interviews for Project Camelot and is planning 21 more over the coming months. The website for Project Camelot is www.projectcamelot.org. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll on the first ever dual guest interview on Banal of America Audio. This interview was recorded on November 1st, 2006. Carrie Cassidy and Bill Ryan on Banal of America Audio Season 2. We're going to continue on our conversation here now with Bill Ryan on his new project, Project Camelot. Also, Bill has graciously brought in uh, his partner on this project, Kerry Cassidy. Kerry, welcome to the show. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, well, let's start out first, Kerry, uh, with your background and your bio and how you uh, 
came upon the UFO scene here and how you got wrapped up in it, because uh, I was looking at your bio on the website and said you had 19 years in Hollywood, which is really sounds awesome. So tell me about your background and how you came upon starting up Project Camelot with Bill. Okay, well, um, you know, I have a BA in English and graduate work in sociology. Um, spent a lot of time in Northern California. That's that's really where I'm from. And then I came down to Southern California and kind of pursued the um, acting, writing, directing dream, I guess you might say. And then I ended up in New York City studying acting for a while and came back to um, Los Angeles and settled down here. Um, while I was in New York, I basically kind of got into the whole UFO scene um, through various ways, including dreams that I was having. And um, then when I was back in L.A., um, after many years in Hollywood and not being able to kind of break through that glass ceiling, mm -hmm. I decided to pick up a camera and just go out and make my own documentary. Um, and decided to do it about UFOs. Um, I was also a screenwriter, um, shopping scripts around Hollywood and trying to get stories made that were, that involved UFOs. And I found, um, I fell across the, uh, wingmakers.com site. Mm -hmm. And that was when I was researching one screenplay and found that they were already, you know, already had a, a fully developed story and music and, paintings, and it's it's quite an amazing website. If you've never been there, I, I encourage you to go. And I uh, got the rights to make that movie and to shop it around Hollywood. So I was doing that as well. And eventually, uh, around November, actually the same time Serpo started up, I was part of the same news group as Bill, which is the Victor Martinez's list, which yeah. is somewhat notorious at this time. <laughs> and um, so I was privy to all the Serpo releases and so on. And since I was doing my documentary, I was um, I had been to the Crash Retrieval Conference last November and interviewed people there and was kind of well on my way to doing it when I came across Bill as, you know, being the webmaster for Serpo. So I decided that when I went to Laughlin in March, um, I would interview him. So that's exactly what I did, along with a couple other people, including Bill Hamilton, and the interview is currently on the Hamlet site with Bill. Yeah. Um, and so it's actually in interviewing Bill for Serpo that we met for the first time. Huh. And we just hit it off and ended up talking, you know, after I turned off the camera, we went to dinner and talked for a really long time, and then we had a month-long email co correspondence, and eventually um, I was scheduled to go to Egypt uh, during um, a tour that was part of the Atlantis um, William Henry tour. Yep. And so I did that, and on the way back I stopped in England to say hello to Bill and uh, get to know him better. And I guess you'd say the rest is history. Yeah. <laughs> So now we're, we're, we decided that we both have this passion to get the word out and to get the stories out and to um, stop some of the, the uh, cover-up that's been going on. And yeah. so we, we came up with this idea, and actually we were in Tintagel, which is um, a place that um, King Arthur is known to have, have lived and, and suppose it, the real King Arthur, depending on your point of view, um, and 
so that was sort of a bit of the inspiration for the name Project Camelot and the idea of the round table and, you know, all people being equal and able to have access to all the information. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Bill, uh, why don't you tell us about the, the overall project, some of the goals of uh, Project Camelot, because it seems like you're amassing quite a, quite a base here of interviews. Yeah. Um, one of the inspirations for site was uh, this guy who has come rather uh, unfortunately known as Mr. X. That was Jerry Pippin's moniker for him. And he contacted me when I was still uh, solely devoted to the SOPO website. And he contacted me through the SOPO website contact form. He said, I don't know anything about any kind of exchange program, but I'll tell you what, I do have an interesting story and I'd like to tell it. And he just told me one or two um, snippets of information that really uh, tweaked my interest. And yeah. then after that, we got into an email correspondence, which actually uh, snowballed for quite a long time before we did anything with it. And round about the time that Kerry and I were in England, as she said, we uh, went to Tintagel, which is the um, uh, supposed uh, magical site of Camelot way back when. Mr. X was part of the mix that was inspiring us to take this on because we thought, well, how many more of these guys are there out there? We'd been following Stephen Greer's disclosure project for some time. We're not in any way wishing to supplant the excellent work that he's doing. We support him fully. Um, we're inspired by a lot of his whistleblowers who have come forward with their own astounding testimony, having the courage to speak up under their own names. But we just felt that there's more. Um, and um, armed, so to speak, with Mr. X, we began to think, well, okay, um, actually there's a really huge picture here that is even larger than the, the disclosure project itself because that was only to do with UFO secrecy. There's something to do with vested interests in the world and the extent to which people who's, who, who speak up rather too inconveniently, not only in the fields of ufology, but in the fields of free energy and anti-gravity research and alternative medicine, mm -hmm. and even a whole bunch of other things, that they all run up against the same problems. And those problems for some of them are serious, can be life-threatening, and in some cases can be life-terminating. And one of the facets of our site was we wanted to, uh, to feature it as a tribute site to a lot of people of uh, incredible bravery, not only in ufology, but in alternative medicine, um, uh, microbiology, free energy research, who have just stepped over that line of being tolerated by the powers that be. They challenge those vested interests just a little bit too much, and in many cases they paid for it with their lives. And an interesting thing that, um, that I saw, because until I became involved in SOPO um, back nearly 12 months ago, actually it's exactly 12 months ago for goodness sake, this is the anniversary, the 1st of November as we're speaking to you now, huh. um, didn't occur to me, <laughs> uh, okay, um, a year ago. Up until then, I'd been a kind of um, armchair ufologist, but I'd also been an armchair student of um, all these uh, uh, assets of um, research 
let us say, that go against currently accepted paradigms. Yeah. And I was, uh, I was in the case of knowing quite a lot about quite a lot of things and not really being a specialist in anything. Mm -hmm. And um, but I could see from that vantage point how the ufology community and the alternative medicine community and the free energy communities, they're all highly specialized. They have their news groups, they have their forums, they have their websites, they have their conventions. And they tend not to talk to each other very much. There's not an awful yeah. lot of crossover. Yeah. Yeah. And we thought, okay, there's a real commonality here. There's something to do with the fact that, that everybody despite their field of interest or their speciality or their experience, um, has a um, uh, uh, exactly the same factors in common. And if they're going to be taken out of the game or if they're going to be threatened, they're going to be threatened or taken out by the game by fundamentally exactly the same people. And if you really look at the big picture, this pyramid, so to speak, mm -hmm. ends up with the same people at the top. These are the suppressors. These are the people who are actually controlling uh, an awful lot of what happens on this planet. People have different names for them. Some people call them the Illuminati. Some people call them the Baal. Um, and this is where it all this is where it all leads. Now, if one starts to focus on those areas, the details start to get fuzzy because we don't necessarily know the names of the individuals who are spearheading all of this. But the pattern is very clear. We wanted to draw attention to the pattern and um, the overall aims of Project Camelot, although at the moment it's fairly heavily uh, slanted, as it were, towards ufology. We've only just got going. We do want to, to start being a platform for information in other fields also. Mm -hmm. And the Ralph Ring interview that you'll see on our site uh, doesn't have anything to do with aliens and extraterrestrials. Not not evidently anyway. It's much more to do with free energy research that um, has been heavily suppressed. Otis Carr himself got very much taken out of the game in the way that some UFO researchers have. And fairly soon we hope to have um, an interview published by a very brave man who is coming out under his own name. Um, we, we, we aren't at liberty aren't at liberty to say anything about this at the moment. It may have been published by the time that people are listening to this particular interview as it's been recorded. Yeah. But uh, that's got nothing to do with UFOs. If anything, it's uh, it's a lot more sinister. It's got to do with mind control. And that's a whole ball game in itself. And yeah. Got themselves into deep trouble for sticking their necks a little bit too far out in that direction. Definitely, definitely. Um, but that's in our remit, and so that's where we're going to go. Um, now, since you guys got Project Camelot up and running, how many people have come forward uh, to you guys that want to be interviewed and want to speak out? Well, we've had a few people contact us, and they're um, actually we have people contacting us all the time. Yeah. Ones with, um, shall we say, very thought-provoking stories. Ones that we would want to investigate further are kind of few and far between. Um, however, they are out there, and seems that they're increasing as well. So I guess as, as people get to know us and what we're doing, the word gets out. And so um, we are being approached. Um, at this time, we have a couple possible interviews on the, you know, on the charts that are not known. Um, and that's kind of what we're pursuing as well at this point. 
we did do some landmark interviews with people like Dan Burrish and John Lear and, you know, known players in the ufology um, arena, if you will, but we don't necessarily intend to kind of concentrate there. What we're looking for are the, are the whistleblowers that haven't actually come out yet. Yeah. And um, now how do you go about vetting these uh, potential interviews and whistleblowers and what have you? Because, you know, there's a big argument amongst a lot of people, especially uh, the hardcore skeptics and what have you, that say, you know, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And let's say, you know, you interview some guy and it turns out he's a nut. Then it hurts the whole, the whole uh, you know, hurts the whole bathwater. You know, throwing out the baby. Um, so how do you vet these potential interviewees? It's a problem that we're aware of. I think this is the first thing that um, that we want to say. If um, if if I was a government agent wanting to embarrass uh, Project Camelot, I would approach them with an enticing story yeah. that was just too good not to broadcast, and then um, later reveal that the whole thing was a hoax and um, aim to discredit us that way. And so we're on the lookout. We're not. Um, uh, at all naive about that. Yeah. That's just the obvious way to to try and take us down. Um, going um, uh, bit by bit with this, there are actually only uh, three individuals, I guess, who um, nobody had really heard of before. There's Mr. X, there's Henry Deacon, and there's Ralph Ring himself. Um, I uh, had been in correspondence with Mr. X for quite a long time, several months, as I mentioned before, um, uh, before we got together with him. This was in, uh, was that Terry? It was in May, wasn't it, that we met him and actually um, interviewed him on camera. Right. Um, there's sometimes when you just, you just know this guy, he's as honest as the day is long. He's a lovely man. Um, uh, his integrity shines through him um, in every way. And um, it's, it's, it, um, it has all the hallmarks, every single test, if you like, of somebody who is um, telling the truth, wanting to get the, uh, the truth out. I would be very, very wary about um, interviewing somebody remotely who I'd never met, like over the telephone. Yeah just by kind of email correspondence. Um, I think that that's something that really does deserve very careful scrutiny if you're operating at a distance in that way. Um, but I should say that uh, we, we sort of have the approach that we're not the judge and jury, so that we are not out to um, prove or disprove any of these stories, as a matter of fact. What we're more interested in is relying on um, our intuition and psychic um, sort of abilities, which um, both of us are, are very intuitive. Um, we also have both researched for a long time this, this sort of subject, as well as others, um, yeah. sort of conspiracy theories, things like that. So we're very well read in terms of the overall scenario, I guess, you know, you might call it. Mm -hmm. um, so this helps in betting in a sort of general way, I guess, people that do come to us. And then we rely heavily, I would say, on on our own intellectual and intuition. Yeah. Let me jump in as well just to 
um, to augment that. Mm -hmm. um, there are many other people who are putting out um, uh, good material, interviews with people, and I would include yourself in that, of course, as a many people who are doing this sort of thing. Um, and there's a kind of spectrum between people who want to um, uh, present information only that has been rigorously vetted um, and passed the toughest scrutiny. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there are people who are happy basically to have anyone on stage because it's a, because it's a rattling good story. It's great entertainment. Yeah. Who cares if it's a hoax or not because they're going to get lots of listeners and some good advertising revenue and it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, I don't mean that disparagingly at all because that's oh, no. a legitimate way of going about things. As long as everyone is clear, honest about the role that they're playing um, and the game that they're playing, if you like. Yeah. We're certainly um, aiming to occupy the ground that's much closer to that uh, first side of the spectrum that I was describing. Mm -hmm. We want to present serious information to people. There are one or two individuals who we have decided not to pursue because it didn't smell right. We felt that, um, that the story probably would not stand up to scrutiny. We're not saying that these people have necessarily been um, uh, sent to challenge us by the powers that be in the way that I was talking about earlier. But sometimes a story just doesn't quite smell right or a person doesn't quite smell right or you see little inconsistencies. And we have had a few of those. Now, we don't want to put names to those people because it's embarrassing and it's unkind and we'd rather let them just float off into the sunset and do their own thing. Yeah. There were some interesting uh, experiences that we had. For example, um, the opportunity to interview Dan Burish came quite suddenly. And we'd been intrigued by his information for a, a number of years. There are parts of what um, he was saying that had smelt true to me and to Kerry um, uh, entirely independently of one another. Um, problems to do with parallel timelines, overlapping timelines, time loops, and all that kind of stuff, yeah. um, really felt real to me. Um, and what we were also aware of was that he's under um, a huge amount of attack from a lot of detractors and people who say that the whole story is crazy and that he's crazy and that this is a hoax and that and anyone's nuts for willing uh, to even consider the fact that it might be true. And we thought, okay, well, what we're going to do is we're going to talk to the guy, given the fact that he had graciously invited us to meet him. And this was through somebody else who introduced us to him. Yep. Um, when we met him, it was completely clear to us that this man was not lying or hoaxing. Um, people who say that he is have not met him in person. And so what we wanted to do in our interview was uh, to make – available the best substitute possible for a personal meeting. You know, it's like it's uh, um, uh, it's two hours and 20 minutes or so of um, uh, the listener or the viewer sitting right opposite the man, as it were, yeah. and have the experience of being able to look into his eyes as he's telling this incredibly complicated story. And um, in the sense that it's such an important case, and we felt that th 
man is not lying or hoaxing, and we will, you know, each say this on the record that this is our this is our considered feeling. Um, if the information, which is very challenging, subsequently proves to be inaccurate for any reason, then there may be something else completely different going on. Man's intentions are good, and of that, we're absolutely convinced. Therefore, that was a good enough test for us. We thought, this is amazing. We've got to get this information out there. It's so important that just as I said uh, a little while back when we last spoke about my stance on SERPO, um, my position is not to be a diehard advocate of the story, but to be an advocate of people being willing to suspend their disbelief for long enough to consider it. And I think with Dan Beerish in particular, that applies totally. Yeah. One of the things that Bill was sort of talking about just now that I wanted to ask you about is, is one of the very exciting parts about Project Camelot, and that's the video interview aspect of it. I mean, a lot of shows like Van All America Audio and, and the big esoteric radio shows, I mean, they're radio-based. And then, of course, you have the, uh, you know, the basic cable sort of faux documentaries that we see on UFOs that are usually kind of subpar. But what you guys are doing is something uh, pretty different, and you're doing these video interviews uh, uh, via the Internet, and also, the, you can download those and get them on Google Video. And I'm sure you brought a lot of your Hollywood background to uh, the video aspect of Project Camelot. So why don't you talk some about? Why don't you talk a little bit about that uh, that video aspect of Project Camelot? Because it's pretty groundbreaking as far as uh, interviews like this go. Thank you. Um, well, actually, I'm glad to hear you say that. Um, yeah, I absolutely. I was a struggling filmmaker and. This is an incredible sort of outlet for me, um, but at the same time, what I thought was to, to, you know, go back to the Disclosure Project. The interesting thing about the Disclosure Project is that all of the interviews that he did, although they were put into a book and, and they're really fabulous, um, apparently he shot a lot of footage, and he actually has the film footage, but he's never released it. And the hesitancy there is that he didn't think the quality would be up to par unless he spent a fair amount of money, from what I understand. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm not trying to, to put words into Stephen Greer's mouth, but yeah. this is what I understood from, from the preface of the book. And I come from a completely different direction, um, sort of like more from an underground, avant-garde orientation as a filmmaker and an artist and saying, you know, look – information is what matters. The people are what matter. Let's get them on camera. Let's hear and see whether they're telling the truth. Mm -hmm. It's really phenomenal to be able to see somebody and you don't have a, you know, you're not cutting away to um, stock footage a million times yeah. and losing eye contact and all this kind of, you know, trying to do fancy stuff. But in reality, some of these people are just incredible on camera. There, it becomes like a portrait of, of their personality and of who they really are. And it, and you really travel the road with them for a short time, I think, um, if I do my job well. So uh, that's that's kind of where I was coming from. And luckily, you know, Bill um, sort of agreed with me. And the, the reason I got – we kind of like teamed up to do that was because he saw his own interview in that way. Yeah. And I had done his interview from the point of view that a lot of people were attacking Bill as opposed to the Serpo story. They were attacking him yeah. personally. And I thought that was really outrageous considering he was the webmaster. And what I really came to do was to find out just who he was, 
what he stood for and why he was doing what he did. And if you watch that particular, you know, interview, you see Bill and his personality and his honesty and integrity really shine through. And I think it, it kind of dispelled a lot of the, the stuff that was circulating around the net at the time. So that's kind of what I'm also about. When I find a person who is controversial, I'm very interested in interviewing them. Yeah. Because what I want to do is is kind of cut through all the bullshit and, you know, get the person out there so people can really see the, what they're all about. Exactly, exactly. Well, stick around in the UFO field. You'll find plenty of controversial people and, and, <laughs> and people getting personally attacked. So <laughs> Apparently so. There's no shortage of, the, of that. Um, why don't you talk about uh, one of the key interviews in your series, and that's the Henry Beacon interview. This guy um, is going under a pseudonym. Oh, Henry Deacon. I have a typo here. I'm sorry. Um, well, he's actually named after uh, the guy who's in Eureka, the character, the Henry Deacon character, if you if you watch the series at all. Oh, okay. Um, he's the uh, sort of mad inventor that has a solution for everything and kind of crosses all the different disciplines. And we named him that. Um, it's a pseudonym, obviously, um, just for fun and because he, this particular person, is kind of um, a jack-of-all-trades, um, although we classified him as a physicist, and that is one of his aptitudes. He is not formally a physicist. So um, we are we kind of what we wanted to do was, was create um, sort of a, a shelter behind which he could reveal his information but not reveal so much that the government would be able to go out and find out who he was right away. Yeah. Which isn't to say that we're not that we're naive and we don't think that they probably have already figured that out. They probably have. Um, in fact, it's it's quite possible that that they knew about him at the time. You know, because at this point we take it for granted that they are finding ways to listen in to. I mean, they've been tracking Serpo emails for God knows how long at this point. Yeah. Um, so certainly the Camelot emails are, are fair game as well. Um, so, but at any rate, the point is to protect these people as much as possible, with given our current um, sort of, I don't know, 1984 Orwell's uh, Big Brother scenario that we've got going on here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we interviewed him. Actually, we met with him a few times, and he is a, just an amazing guy. He's he's really brilliant, I have to say, and he's. Um, he's quite extraordinary. He's not your normal um, physicist by any stretch, um, and he's also had a number of different kinds of jobs within deep black uh, community. Mm -hmm. So this gave him a vantage point that a lot of people don't have. Um, when you're cross-disciplinary the way he is, um, he got a look at a lot of different things. He's also very spiritual. And um, so we, we formed a real connection with him. And at any rate, most of the information is on the site. Um, he had really some groundbreaking information. And some of the stuff, he also was able to substantiate Dan Burrish's testimony. And this is one of the first people who's ever come forward to be able to do that. Yeah. So, um, and he didn't even know who he was. He hadn't seen the interview. Um, we urged him to take a look at our interview after we spoke with him because we said some of what you're telling us you know, is aligning 
very well with what Dan Burrish came up with. And um, he sent us a, an email at one point that said, you know, Dan Burrish, after he watched our interview, he said, Dan Burrish is telling the whole truth. I confirm this, timelines and all, best with wishes. And I mean, you know, that was just like amazing information. So like it or not, here's a guy um, in a completely different part of the world from Dan talking about um, some of the things that, that Dan is talking about, unbeknownst to completely unfamiliar with Dan, um, and the whole, you know, thing going around, on around Burrish. So, so it was very interesting. So we're always looking for um, people that can substantiate other people's testimony. Yeah. And sort of going to this uh, Henry Deegan thing, and this sort of is also a throwback to what Bill and I were talking about um, in our interview, which we conducted last week, and sort of also ties into your website, because uh, I saw this quote on your website for the on the bio page, and it was sort of like, wow, that's kind of funny, because this is sort of what I was going to ask them. Uh, and the quote is, the best place to hide is out in the open. Um, why do some of these people... Uh, like Mr. Axe and Deacon and also the folks who are associated with the Serpo story. Maybe you can speak to that too, Bill. Um, why do these witnesses uh, stay in anonymity when it's pretty well known that sort of if you come forward, you're in, you're in better shape to survive this whole experience? If you, if you hide out or if you stay anonymous, then, you know, you're more available to be suicided or offed or just disappear from from the radar screen. So have they had any have they ever spoken of their motivation of why that seems counterintuitive to uh getting the word out? Well, in in some cases it has to do with pressure from the nearest and dearest. Mm-hmm. Um I know this to be a fact certainly with um uh Mr. X for example his wife was was extremely nervous about him speaking to anybody. Um, Henry is in exactly the same situation. Um, uh, his wife didn't want him to speak to us um, uh, either. And um, we, uh, interestingly enough, just going back to not Serpo itself, but the Serpo scenario, one of the people who contacted us indirectly um, and here's a little story that um, hasn't made it onto any of the websites, simply because there's not quite enough. It's just one of those intriguing little rumors. Nice. Um, this was, um, and we didn't speak to this person directly. We were only able to hear their story indirectly. It was an elderly man who was a flight surgeon who in the, uh, in 1974, I believe it was from memory, found himself um, uh, teaching a group um, on on desert survival skills, and he wasn't quite sure why he was doing this, and later on he was told by his commanding officer that this group were going to another planet. Oh, wow. Um, and what was really intriguing about that is that this was after the dates for the SERPA mission, which implies that there was another one or another such exchange program, yeah. which, as I think I mentioned to you last time we spoke, actually comes as no logical surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this guy was considering telling his story, although it wasn't a huge story. It was just a little piece of the jigsaw puzzle, mm-hmm. but it's first-hand witness testimony to something that was really quite extraordinary. Yeah. And his wife said, look, you know, you will not do this. I do not want you to do this because we've spent uh, decades opening doors, or rather, you know, um, 
over years and years and years of, of our association with the military, certain doors have become open to us. We don't want them suddenly closing on us. Exactly, yeah. And the guy said, yes, dear. Now, <laughs> once again, I don't mean that disparagingly, actually. That was stated in a quite the right way, because I really do understand people. I understand people who have this dilemma. Uh -huh. um, I didn't have it myself, but I don't want to disparage or condemn anyone who's nervous about coming forward, because there are good reasons to be nervous. You know, it's not a cakewalk. It's um, to come out in the open with um, with first-hand um, information of this magnitude can be very dangerous, and that needs to be understood. I do believe, though, that once you take that step of coming forward and saying something public, you're going to be safer if you come right out rather than come half out. I think it's kind of um, all or nothing. This is my personal philosophy that yeah. is there, and that is what I would recommend to somebody else. But for instance, with Mr. Uh, Mr. X, we didn't want to twist his arm because we didn't want to cause any dispute within his, you know, uh, uh, his wife or to make them anxious or anything like that. Yeah. But now, nothing bad has happened to him. Um, the first um, uh, Mr. X interview came out way back in the summertime. It's nearly half a year ago. Everything's normal. Um, and I'm pretty sure that he is considering coming out with all his full details for all the reasons that we've been talking about. Um, if so, we'd be delighted to introduce you to him. Now, but that, that has to be his decision, and it's not our place to twist his arm. But it wouldn't surprise me if by this time last year he was out in the open talking at conferences. It's just my guess. Um, there's also the caveat that the people coming forward are telling stories, sometimes years after the fact, and that they have no documentation. Mm -hmm. um, and this is sort of the thing that saves them, if you will, because the way the powers that be apparently look at this stuff is that you're not going to be able to convince the doubters or change the society's point of view, and certainly CBS and ABC are not going to come and interview you if you don't have some form of proof. If all you have is a witness testimony, um, the way the consensus reality views that is that, you know, maybe it's true and maybe it's not. So they have a good reason for plausible deniability. And as long as they've got that going for them, um, you know, it's, it apparently looks like they're not going to be pursued. Now, in the, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to the Ralph Ring interview, but if you listen to Ralph's story, they were actually building a flying saucer with Otis Carr. And, you know, the FBI actually came in and shut them down. So, um, you know, in that case, one could say that um, the powers that be won't let you alone if, if what you're doing appears to threaten um, the economic sort of uh, status quo. Yeah. So, so these are also caveats. I mean, there are others as well. I mean, everyone knows about the microbiologists that have been, you know, knocked off one after the other. Um, there's a huge list of people. There are ufologists that have died, you know, under suspect conditions. Mm -hmm. um, there, you know, and, and people can always pull the names out of the hat. And in fact, one of the parts of the Camelot website is to give tribute to those people. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
you know, so it's not to be taken lightly um, just to say, well, you know, the best place to hide it out is out in the open. We do believe that. We believe the more publicity you get, the safer you are. But by the same token, um, if you have investigated some things and you do make yourself um, a nuisance point of view of the powers that be, it is, you know, who can say? I mean, we may, you know, we might be on their hit list next for all we know. It's You don't know when you're going to have an impact. Um, but our philosophy is also, you know, a spiritual one. In other words, as far as we're concerned, you know, the soul goes on, we reincarnate, you know, we go to other planets. I mean, you know, this is, is what it's about, um, you know, telling the truth and being honest and getting you know, humanity to grow out of this sort of place that it's stuck in is, is vitally important at this time. Yeah, yeah. And then speaking to uh, another portion of the Project Camelot website, that's the round table. Uh, talk somewhat, so I mean, talk a little bit about the, the round table part of uh, the Project Camelot website because it, it looks intriguing. Yeah. Um, what we want to do, and at the moment we've had such a lot of um, uh, tension on um, working through uh, the interviews, editing the material, getting the stuff out there. And um, there are a lot of logistics attached to that. It's actually yeah. uh, it's a full-time job. It's more than a full-time job for the two of us. We're probably doing the job of three or four people here between the two of us. Mm -hmm. um, we haven't given it an awful lot of attention yet. certainly something we want to do. Um, sometime before not too long, is actually to remind people of that part of the website and say, look, you know, what we want is we want something that's a little bit like a petition. We want people to put their names on there and we'll almost consider it to be a little bit of an insurance policy for the reasons that, we're, um, uh, that we've already stated, that somebody who's signing up for their name to be there is in effect saying, look, you know, um, I'm not going to be taken out of the game. If there have been any kind of reports that I've gone missing or that I've suicided or something like this, you know, then you know what? I've been taken out against my will. This is the kind of strong statement that we invite people to make. And we are collecting names. We've got a fair few at the moment. Um, and we're only going to... Um, publish a list once there is this element of safety in numbers. Um, if there were just three or four names there, then I think it would start to look a bit vulnerable. Yeah. Um, and that is something that we do want to give some measure to. Um, I do know for a fact that there are a lot of people who would certainly sign up instantly, but they've actually just forgotten all about it because they're just talking to us about our interviews. And so... Um, that's something I think that comes next over the next few months. That's something that we would definitely like to see long list of names there. And you're looking for like researchers and, and activist type people, right? Not just uh, some dude who stumbles upon the website and is a fan, right? Yeah, absolutely we are. Um, we're looking for people to take a stand that, that many people have applauded us for um, in private. It, it's, I mean, uh, but it's also, it's not just activists, um, you know, it's anyone. In other words, anyone that considers themselves to be someone out on the line. Um, and that's their their call, you know what I mean? Yeah. In other words, they can pledge and, and sign up, you know, as, as sort of 
joining us in solidarity, if you will. Okay. Yeah, it's a bit like a virtual kind of um, uh, peace demonstration. Sit down, peaceful protest is exactly the word I was going to use. There you go. It's just like you know, there we are, and we're sitting down in the middle of the road, and we're all holding a placard, and we're saying, you know what? We're here to stay, and we do not. Uh, we want to 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 add our voices and our presence and our names. Um, to the principles that the site is espousing, which is that we're not going to be bowed by this pressure. It's, it's one plank among many. There are, there are a lot of um, uh, um, people, organizations. There are um, uh, journalists and interviewers like yourself. There are websites all over the place. The Internet is the greatest tool. And, and there is... A movement that is growing. There is an awareness that's growing that says, you know, um, this far and no more. It's really starting to come out. Um, another area that we haven't spoken yet is, um, but it is 9/11. Um, it's becoming um, quite organised. They're having their own conferences. There are some very prestigious people who are putting their academic principles on the line by saying, you know what. Um, uh, what happened on 9-11 just doesn't, um, uh, the official story just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Yeah. Something here, there's some truth that's not being told mm -hmm. because the way um, uh, that the official account goes about the way that the, um, the Twin Towers fell down, it violates all the laws of physics. There's something going wrong here. Um, and that's not even looking at the Pentagon. It's not even looking at a whole bunch of things. And those people are now becoming organized. I think maybe 20 or 30 years ago, that kind of movement would not have survived its birth. And yet it's flourishing and it's growing now. And it's becoming very powerful. And... It's very hard to ignore. I know the mainstream media are doing their best to ignore it at the moment. But after a while, it's going to be hard to ignore. There are just too many individual voices. Yeah. And do you expect Project Camelot to uh, go in that direction and talk to some 9-11 type uh, researchers or whistleblowers? I would be very happy to, actually. Um, I don't necessarily think that we would be in a position to come up with anything new because they have their own platform, but we'd like to, you know, uh, to, uh, um, to well, connect with that group because we think that they're, having, that, that they're up against exactly the same factions and vested interests that we described at the beginning of this interview. Yeah. And well, therefore they belong in our tent, so to speak. It's also, well, it's also that they are, um, I mean, it's part of the conspiracy that once you realize that 9-11 wasn't what it was cracked up to be, um, there's a whole road you can go down that, that and, you know, includes the Kennedy assassination and, and what's really going on in this country, let alone in the, the whole planet. Yeah. Um, so we're all about questioning everything. Um, and it's all about the new paradigm. There is something new it's going to be supplanting the old forms. And we're about, you know, getting that new thing out as, as quickly as possible and educating people about what that's all about. 
Awesome. Carrie, I wanted to ask you about the Gary McKinnon interview because uh, we had Gary on the show. He's a great guy, and it sounds like you had quite an adventure uh, getting the interview with him out there in London in the pubs and stuff. Yeah, he's great. Um, Well, that was, yeah, that was a a real adventure. Uh, We had no idea that until, I mean, that actually happened at the complete last minute. And we were in England, and I basically had to take a bunch of trains and had no idea how I was, <laughs> where I was going and had to be met with by someone to, to sort of negotiate all the all the underground you know railroads in England and whatnot um, but we made it to a, a pub and uh, Gary is a, a fascinating guy, really um, quite brilliant and um, really a truth seeker on his own. No, and and it was thrilling to to interview him. And um, like I said, it came on as unexpectedly. Um, it was it was just great. And he he's very forthcoming. I mean, it's obvious in the interview. He's just you know he's out there. He is who he says he is. Yeah. Are there any other specific interviews? Sure. Um, well, let me see. Um, there is uh, Michael St. Clair, who is a, a very recent interview who we met in Montreux, Switzerland, and is a sort of a dis- departure for what appears to be, uh, you know, what we've been going after so far. However, it's not. Um, He's a futurist, and we're all about um, also sort of paving the way for the future and thinking about 2012 um, and the coming Earth changes, and we want to start getting um, the word out as much as possible about those things. And he's a real spiritual guy, um, quite quite um, eclectic in his interests and his passions. And um, he's a, a, talking about the safe places and ways to sort of ride out the changes and sort of stay, you know, stay centered and possibly be of use to other people, you know, during the things that may, may be coming down the pike. Yeah. What's next for Project Camelot? Where do you see this going in the weeks and months to come and years to come? Well, um, we... We have a backlog now of interviews that need to be edited, <laughs> as a matter of fact, um, on top of which we are going to be at, um, attending the Crash Retrieval Conference in November. Oh, really? I'll be and, there, too, so I'll see you there. Oh, fabulous. Very good, Tim. We look forward to that. Um, and we're going to be hopefully offering DVDs and actually CDs with our files on them um, for a very low price so that people that have dial-up and are frustrated with trying to download our, our interviews can get them um, if actually we'll be, you know, sort of selling them over the web eventually. So these are some of the plans to get, you know, our stuff out there um, and more accessible to people. And then also um, iTunes has podcasts, and we've been invited to, to try to together something for them as well. Um, so... We're, we're kind of involved in a lot of things. We're also, um, we've got screenplays that we're, have the, that, you know, I have had in, in the works in the past and that we we're also developing things around a lot of the subjects that we talk about and, you know, people we interview. Um, and so we're also still knocking on the door of Hollywood so to speak. Awesome. Awesome. Sounds great. Um, There is one thing we wanted to make sure to say, which is that if there is anyone out there who has a story to tell and wants to get the word out and they are able to contact us anonymously through our contact form on the Project Camelot website. And also, you know, they can always send us an email at support at projectcamelot.org if they, you know, want to go that route. 
Um, we're very interested to hear people's stories. We are looking for, um, you know, very fairly substantial stories, but whatever um, you have to tell people and would like to get out there, if it's possible for us to do so, then, you know, we're definitely going to be out there for you. So um, we just want to kind of put the word out that way. Definitely, definitely. And, uh, well, the website is www.projectcamelot.org. You can find some great interviews there, some fabulous video interviews as well, which is pretty rare to find here on the Internet nowadays. Once again, the website is projectcamelot.org. Carrie Cassidy, Bill Ryan, thanks for being on the show. It's a great pleasure. Thank you, Tim, very much. Thanks. That does it for this week's edition of Benal of America Audio. Big, big thanks to Bill Ryan and Carrie Cassidy for coming on the show. You can find out more information on their work at www.projectcamelot.org. Moving right along now, it's time for Benal of America Audio listener feedback. And this week's letter comes from James in Tacoma, Washington. And here's what James had to say. Tim, great interview with Grant Cameron from Benal of America Audio Season 1. Are you going to interview him this current season? I would like to hear some follow-ups on the Clinton stuff he was talking about. Also, anything else pertaining to Wilbert Smith. Thanks again. Sincerely, James Archer Payne in Tacoma, Washington. Well, thank you very much for writing in, James. Um, as of right now, we don't have Grant Cameron penciled in for the immediate future, but I definitely want to bring him back on the show. I expect that we'll be talking to him as the 2008 presidential primary season starts heating up, when we know who some of the big players will be in the 08 election, and we can find out how best to get UFO information from those players. So depending on whether that's the end of Season 2 or the beginning of Season 3, I expect that we'll be talking to him about the big election and the UFO implications of all that. When we do get him on the show again, I'll be sure to ask him about the Clinton stuff that he was talking about, and we'll get some more follow-up on the Wilbert Smith story. You can check out the Grant Cameron interview from Banal of America Audio Season 1 at banalofamerica.com. It is a lengthy three-hour discussion. We broke it up over two weeks, talking about just a ton of material there. So if you haven't heard that one, it's a classic Banal of America Audio episode. Definitely check that out. Thank you very much, James, for writing in. Stay tuned to BenalofAmerica.com for more information on future Benal of America Audio guests. If you would like your correspondence featured on Benal of America Audio listener feedback, simply click the contact button in the top right-hand corner of BenalofAmerica.com or write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. Either one of those methods will get your thoughts, questions, comments, into my hands, and we'll put it on the road to being featured on Benal of America Audio listener feedback. Wrapping up the show now, big thanks to Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., and Ralph Molesworth of BenalofAmerica.com for your help and support with the audio series and the website. If you haven't done so yet, definitely stop by the website to check out their columns. They are the perfect supplement to the Benal of America Audio series and worthwhile reading for any student of the esoteric world. BenalofAmerica.com, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. If you're a long-time Benal of America audio listener, an appreciative newcomer, or you're full of holiday spirit and you want to help support the audio series, click the PayPal button at BenalofAmerica.com, make a donation. All expenses for BOA Audio are paid for by yours truly, with help from the generous donations of the Benal of America Audio listening audience. 
If you want to be a part of that generous crowd, click the PayPal button at banalofamerica.com, make a donation, help keep the show up and running and free and available for all of our great listeners worldwide. Next week on Banal of America Audio, our holiday tradition continues as we bring back the father of modern-day ufology, Stanton Friedman, for our annual Christmas special. This one is going to be a doozy. We cover the early years of Stanton Friedman, pre-Roswell days, the evolution of his career as a speaker on flying saucers, some of the big names in ufology that he rubbed elbows with, in the 60s and 70s. We talk about the 1968 Congressional Committee on UFOs that he contributed to. We talk about the Condon Report and its immediate effect on ufology at the time from someone who was right there in the mix. We're going to discuss the NICAP versus APRO feud and who some of the players were during that period and what some of the major sticking points were between the two groups. Stan Freeman was dealing with both of them at the time, so he has some amazing first-hand insight into what the UFO scene was like during that period, and that's what we're going to discuss on Banal of America Audio next week. Plus, we're going to delve into one of our favorite topics here on the show, young people and ufology. We're going to talk about why they aren't gravitating towards the field and what Stan thinks can be done to bring more young people into the field of UFO research. All that, plus tons and tons more. It's a veritable ufology history lesson with the father of modern-day ufology, Stanton Friedman. It's a very special edition of Banal of America Audio. It's the Christmas special. It's next week, only at banalofamerica.com. Stay tuned for a little preview of that. On that note, we close out another week here on Banal of America Audio. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening. You'll be hearing from me next week. Until then, this is Tim Banal, signing off. Next week on Banal of America Audio. I haven't celebrated Festivus in years. What is your interest? Well, just tell me everything. It's the most wonderful time of the year. The early Stan Friedman was learning his trade, was getting a very good response, and uh, it's continued ever since. It's the most wonderful time of the year. You're certainly right that a lot of people think uh, Roswell's what got me started and so forth, and not at all. And a little history before that, Edward Ruppelt, Donald Kehoe, J. Allen Hynek, Dr. James E. McDonald, Frank Edwards, Coral and Jim Lorenzen, Afro and NICAP. I talked to colleagues and so forth, and I joined the groups, and I even wrote a researcher asking him for advice on how to get involved, and I obviously didn't take his advice, because what he said was he recommended not getting involved, it's too much trouble. Well, obviously, I didn't listen. I read the book, and I decided, you know, it's time for me to do something. It's the most wonderful time of the these kinds of reactions convinced me when the bottom fell out of the advanced nuclear space system to go full time lecturing. It's the most wonderful time of the year. The real situation is that most people at least aren't neutral and at best are believers. It's the non believers who are in the minority. Yeah. But the perception is that, uh, gee, if you admit to being interested or having seen one, you're some kind of a nut. Well, these guys are with the cream of the crop, not at the bottom of the barrel. There are many people who don't want to make waves. 
I say make all the waves you can, it's okay. It's the most wonderful time of the year. This is Stanton Friedman, the nuclear physicist who wrote Top Secret Magic and is co-author of Crash at Corona, the definitive study of the Roswell incident. And you can hear me on Banal of America Audio. Oh, 